The Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, the FAR Council, earlier this month issued something the procurement community has been expecting, an interim rule that bans TikTok, the app, from certain contractor devices. Here to explain the implications, Haynes and Boone partner, Zach Prince. Zach, good to have you back. Good to be here, Tom. So this rule is interim, which means it's in effect, but not final. What does it do exactly? So that's right. So the the rule is implementing a requirement that was mandated by Congress and then uh, with some implementing guidance from OMB back in February. It bans any application put out by ByteDance Limited, which is the company that owns TikTok or any affiliate from being present on any IT owned or managed by the government or any IT used or provided by contractor under a contract. Right. So that leads to some fuzziness because are people that religious, let's say, about keeping one device for personal and one device for business? Because millions of people are affected here, correct? That's right. So I've been getting questions from clients with just that issue. You know, do we now need to say anybody who's using our email system on their phone, for example, can't have TikTok? And do we need to impose real restrictions to ensure that is the case? The rule's not totally clear on what contractor employees are going to be covered. So if you're doing back office support, doing HR, accounting, et cetera, that incidentally is covering a government contract, are you one of those covered employees? Uh, A lot of open questions. And a lot of companies, just as even in some cases agencies, have a so-called BYOD, bring your own device policy. Well, how many D's are people supposed to be of their own because, you know, no one has an unlimited budget for devices. That's right. So it's always made me a little wary to have my employer have access and total control of my phone. And I think a lot of employees likely think the same. Uh, It would be better if you just use your company technology and then you can keep your personal and work life separated. But the reality is these days, it's hard to do that in general. All right. So this rule then, what does it impose with respect to bids, solicitations, the communications that go back and forth between the government and contractors? So this rule is essentially the same impact as the uh, telecommunications ban or the Huawei ban. It's a new clause. It requires you to be representing that you're in compliance with it. Failing to comply with it is likely a material breach of your contract. So companies have to be doing some due diligence and should have been doing it already for a while to be sure that they're really implementing this. And I think they ought to be going further anyway. There have been concerns about TikTok for years from the cybersecurity community. It is a good policy, I think, to uh, prohibit TikTok anyway on company devices or anything that can touch your networks. You know, notwithstanding the question of why anyone would spend more than four minutes looking at TikTok in the first place, (laughs) I'm just showing my age, I guess, but it seems like a river of ridiculousness. But notwithstanding that, what do we really know about the security implications? I mean, the hearings that took place a couple of months back in the Senate were sensational, but didn't really shed a lot of light on the relationship between TikTok, who has a president from Singapore, I think. I mean, it's an international operation. So it's kind of hard to gauge what's really going on, isn't it? It is. And I've spoken with friends who I trust in the cybersecurity space who tell me they actually do have a lot of faith in TikTok US as being really separated 
from the broader TikTok and being able to maintain data security. But the reality is commercial companies in China are treated as an arm of the state and any data that they have available to them as a company is going to be given to the Chinese government. So the firewalling might look good on paper. Uh, it might even be real, but the concerns are significant enough that that firewall can be breached. That I think it poses a real security risk. We know China has police stations. At least we found one, you know, in the United States. And now they've got that listening post in Cuba, which is, you know, practically Florida. But there's another analogy here. Companies from nations with which the United States government can buy from Canada, Great Britain, France and so forth. Even those companies are required to establish air gapped boards of directors and operations in the United States. And that's how they're able to sell here to the government. Nothing like that really for TikTok. It's not firewalled in that manner. And even if it was, could you trust it? Because it is China after all. Yeah. And, and that the U.S. entity requirement is really if you're doing work in the classified space, you know, to mitigate any foreign ownership or control issues. But there was talk last year of trying to get TikTok to sell off its U.S. entity and really be entirely separate. There is, for obvious reasons, I think, strong resistance to doing that from TikTok. But the response when they refused was to start implementing a ban, at least on anything touching government contracts. And you bring up a good point with respect to people operating in the classified space or in the high security space, the national security space, intelligence. There's already probably a lot of restrictions on what people can do on government devices and what contractors can do a priori of the new rule on TikTok. Fair to say? Certainly fair to say. The problem is that there's always a gap between the rules and then what your people do. Right? And that's why we see security breaches. The human factor is always the weakest in any of these cases. Now, we've got fairly, should be fairly sophisticated members of the military you know, releasing intelligence information out on social media. And we certainly have that in the contractor space. So it's really difficult to get your people to be falling in line with the requirements. And TikTok probably shares with most social media and most, I mean, for that matter, shopping platforms. So many platforms do track your whereabouts and use location-based information to feed you stuff. And plus, their algorithms, you know, have this ecosystem of connection to advertisers. And so when you think about it, almost every social media app probably has the potential to give up secrets just because of the plumbing that is so complex for the purposes of data gathering and ad serving. They definitely do. I mean, you have to hope that it's mostly anonymized, but the algorithms are very sophisticated and are absolutely aggregating a ton of data. And you could be talking in a room about, you know, your interest in an item and suddenly your social media stream has all these links to that item. Right. So getting back to the TikTok ban, then what are the practical implications? What are you advising contractors to do now? So I'm telling clients that while I think that you could fairly interpret this rule as applying only to direct employees that are clearly servicing a government contract, it is prudent to impose a broader ban, including on phone that's in part of a BYOD policy. You know, it's an employee's phone that they're using uh, to access company tech. You know, anytime you've got an employee that has their technology or any technology touching your systems, it is just safe to have a TikTok ban. All right. The rule's in place and you know the implications. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. Thanks as always. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. 
that never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, I the way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.